now turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And put your thumb, if we have time, I'm, I'm already racing against the clock. If, if we have time, I would like to take you to 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, but don't hold your breath. The Biblical Role of the Wife, Part 1. And I'm grateful for that fan because it's already getting hot up here. (laughs) Some of you laughed a little too hard. Some texts, if if I were to pick texts, as some pastors do, if I were to pick texts to preach from, on a week-to-week basis, there are some that probably would not come up either very often or at all. In my late teens, I experienced a very painful church split, which was partially due to confusion over a woman's role in the church. When my predecessor preached through a passage in 1 Timothy on Mother's Day, we lost a family of the church who he and I both held very dear. They said that the message was offensive. And I have, uh, uh, around the same time, there was a dear man who used to attend here, and I had encouraged him to encourage his wife, invite his wife to come to church and I preached 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, and some weeks after that, I reminded him again, you know, ha, you know, have you asked your wife lately if she would come to church with you? And he said with a, with a smile in his eye, without breaking a beat, he said, oh, no, that's not going to happen. I said, why? She hates you. <laughs> I, and I was like, why? And he said, well, your sermon, your sermon on the wife's submission to her husband, I went home and told her everything you said. Right. When preaching on such texts, if I give the traditional and biblically conservative position on gender roles, such as you are going to hear, that, would, that will automatically label me and label this church and label you for listening, and I would hope, believe it. And so I'm in luck because Alyssa McCafferty's father, who was a woodworker, made this pulpit to be tomato-resistant. I can hide behind this. Some, some have brought large zucchinis, and I would have I worried a little bit if I saw a box of tomatoes out there. I didn't see that today. But beyond the stability of this awesome pulpit, which I'm very thankful for, this is the Word of God. This is not Aaron speaking, this is the word of God. This is not Aaron's cultural whim speaking, this is the word of God. And we don't pick and choose what texts we are going to preach from week to week as though it were the Sizzler salad bar. We are committed to verse by verse exposition, and here is where we are in the text. And I would remind you that all scripture, even, even the passages that at first glimpse, might seem completely irrelative to our modern culture, and even those which may seem offensive, is profitable for the people of God. Every text, 
all Scripture is profitable for the people of God. And I would also posit before you that in this age where there is much confusion, even outside and inside the church, there is confusion about the roles and responsibility that God has appointed to gender. I would say it's very beneficial for us to see what the Word of God has to say on such matters. So let's read the text. I'm going to give the outline in a few minutes. Let's read the text. Ephesians 5, 22 to 24. Let me uh, wet the whistle before. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, before we, get in, before we dive into this text, there are three things that I would like to place before you for your consideration as it pertains to submission. One, submission or subordination does not denigrate, decrease, or diminish one's value or standing in pers- personhood. Put another way, submission does not mean inferiority. Don't mistake the two. Submission does not equal inferiority. The culture may say so. In fact, the culture does say so. But biblically speaking, being in a position of submission does not mean that you are inferior. When the Bible requires wives to submit to their husbands, it is addressing the role of and the responsibility that God has designed for wives. And it is not in any way, in any way, putting women down or saying that they are anything less than men in any way. Genesis 1.27 says that God created male and female, both of them in his image. And women exhibit the imago Dei, they have the image of God imprinted in their very being, in their makeup. The image of God is that transcendent quality that makes us different from both animal and angel and everything else in creation. There is nothing outside of mankind that is said even once or or even hinted at even once to have the image of God. And men and women in equal measure share the image of God. And that image, that imago Dei, does not shine any less bright or beautifully in the woman who submits to her husband than the one who does not have a husband. So just want to lay that out right now. It doesn't diminish your personhood or your image or your quality as a person. Secondly, submission is not bad or evil. The matter of submission is not bad or evil. In fact, it's good because God designs it 
to be good. And he establishes spheres of authority and submission in multiple areas of life. Romans 13, 1 to 7, 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, we are commanded to submit ourselves and to be subject and subordinated to governing authorities with the understanding that they are ordained by God and that nobody has authority unless given to them by God above. Jesus told Pilate as much. You would have no authority unless it were given to you from above. Pilate didn't like that, by the way. Christian citizens are to subject themselves to their kings, their governors, and their magistrates. Slaves, servants, and workers are to be subject to their earthly matters. Kids, listen up. Children are to be subject to their parents. She's not doing it. Hebrews 13:17 The church body as a whole the corporate church body is called to be subject to its to her elders Again and again we see that God has established an ordered structure where one individual or one group has authority and leadership responsibility over another individual or group and that authority is a reflection of God's own authority not a reflection on their inherent worth or their inherent skill. It is a reflection on God's authority. And it is so because God has appointed it so. It is an authority to be respected and followed because God has established it. And in each sphere, it's an authority that does not come and go with the fickle whims of culture. The structured pairing of a leading authority and a following submission isn't a punishment, nor an indictment, nor a burden for the one designated as the submittee. And I'm not entirely sure if that's a word, but I'm using it anyway. Nor is it proof of validation or an accolade for the one who is appointed as the leader. This has nothing to do with the inherent quality or the assessment of personhood or the value that you have as an individual and as a created being. This has nothing to do with that. This relates to how we as distinct individuals are made and how we are uniquely gifted by the Lord and how the good works that we have that, that have been prepared for us, as Ephesians 2.10 says, this, this relates to how those good works have been prepared, how they have been crafted for me and for you as individuals. It's not, our, our good works are not like a potluck that God has crafted and all put into the bowl like Czech's party mix and you take the, the rye chips because you love, you love that good work and so you take this and you take this, but, but you, don't, you don't touch that good work. No, God has crafted good works for you, Brian, and for you, Eric, and for you, Amanda, and for Jennifer, 
and for Dan and for each one of us. And I am not called to walk in your good work just as much as you are not called to walk in anyone else's good work. You as an individual have your own crafted good works to walk in. And your role, your placement, either as a leader or as a submittee within these spheres is merely the means of those good works being carried out. Now this discussion of submission, be it for the wife or children or servants and workers, is not about keeping any people group, quote, in their place. It's about acknowledging that there are particular works, good deeds, and responsibilities that have been prepared for us as individuals. And they had been entrusted to you because they were meant for you. They were crafted for you. And when we are told to submit, when we are given this instruction as it relates to our role and our individual responsibilities, see to it not as an indictment that you aren't allowed to go and do these things that you want to do, but rather that it is freeing you up to execute your role and to carry out your responsibilities faithfully and without distraction. And I would posit before you that it is most often, if not always, when we are distracted by the alluring promises and offers and opportunities of prerogatives that lay outside of our ordained and designed roles and responsibilities, that the things that really are our roles and responsibilities suffer. So please, please don't see this matter of subordination and submission as a bad thing because it's not. Being precisely what God made you to be, whether it's a leader or a helper, is good because God made you what you are. And God doesn't make mistakes. Being precisely where God has placed you in a position of lesser responsibility and more submission or otherwise is good because God is the one from whom every good and perfect gift comes. And he has placed you there. And fulfilling the good works prepared beforehand for you to walk in is very good because it is none other than God himself who has prepared them for you. Your good works were not relegated to some third-rate angel. He prepared them beforehand for you. And Christ himself, we saw this in chapter 2, I th- no, 4. Christ himself has gifted you. It is God who charted your course. It is God who crafted you the way you are and has given you the skills and the talents and the responsibilities you have. And if indeed you are placed in a position of submission to a higher or to another authority, do not see it as a burden or a penalty or a slight against your God-given dignity. It's not. Third, and lastly, submission is Christ-ordained. Submission is Christ-ordained. Boy, it is dry up here. 
Remember that, remember that Paul, as an, as an apostle, is an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. He is an ambassador. He is a spokesperson for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he speaks to the church, it is really Christ who is speaking. While it was Paul in the flesh who preached to the Ephesians, Ephesians 2.17 shows us that it was really Christ himself who was preaching to the assembly. What Paul says to the church and what Paul has to say to us here today, do not see only the man of Tarsus that is short-sighted. Do not see only the man of Tarsus. See the transcendent God-man behind him. See that it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaking. And on that note, ladies, I would happily remind you that there was no one more caring, more benevolent, more loving, more merciful, and more entreating to ladies than the Lord Jesus Christ. When most, if not all men, would have spurned the Samaritan woman who had five husbands and who at that moment was with a sixth man who wasn't her husband in John 4, Jesus didn't spurn her. He didn't shun her or push her away. He graciously revealed himself as her Messiah who would quench that thirst that she had for so long been trying to quench by the companionship of men. When a woman with a 12-year-old hemorrhage touched his cloak and was healed, rather than shame her for touching him, for, for her as an unclean person in an unclean state, touching and defiling a rabbi of all people, he graced her with the most precious, lovely, gracious words I would say she, she ever heard. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And when a sinful woman washed his feet with her tears and with her hair, he forgave her sins, which were great and were many. And he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so ladies, as we as we assemble together today and the Lord Jesus speaks to us and speaks to you through these words which are so callously disregarded and cast aside, you must see to it that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is speaking to you here today and who is telling you about the role and the responsibility of the married woman, not Aaron not Paul of Tarsus. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not a man trying to preserve the patriarchy. There is not an ounce of misogyny here. This is nothing less than the Lord Jesus Christ speaking through his apostle by means of his inspired word that does not err. And so, in anything but an attitude of a, of a high-handed authority as your pastor, I, with, a, with a heartfelt appeal, I would, I would plead with you in the words of the song that we, that we sung some 20 minutes ago, trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust 
and obey. And I, I felt the need to give this preamble of sorts, lest anyone stumble over these defi- divinely inspired and authoritative words. I want to disarm and I want to dissuade anybody, man or woman, from balking at a piece of sacred scripture that has been abused and neglected and now seems so offensive to the modern culture. Pastor Kent Hughes calls this age the age of liberation. See, we lost Mandy already. I had hopes for you, Mandy. People listening to the recording 10 years from now are going, wow, they're really tough at that church. Kent Hughes calls this age the age of liberation. And an age like that, calling certain groups of people, certain demographics to submit to another group, that can be and is incendiary. It will spark a fire that you will not easily put out. And a passage like this just seems so aberrant, so offensive, so backwards, so irrelevant, so worthless, but I assure you it is not. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture, not just most scripture, not the scripture that you love and love to have on your fridge or have engraved on a piece of woodworking. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Even the scripture that offends the culture and assaults our senses and would on the surface appear outdated, backwards, and wrong. So with that, see, I'm prone to rabbit trails too. So with that preamble aside, here's your outline. And if you are worrying, I'm only getting through the first point today. First point is that the wife's submission is, a, is an exclusive submission. And that's in verse 22a. And then picking up from there, we will see that it is also a structured submission. And then lastly, I think that's 20, uh, rest of 22 to 23. And then in 24, it is a comprehensive submission. An exclusive submission, a structural submission, and a comprehensive submission. So first, and I guess only for today. The biblical role of the wife requires her to have an exclusive submission to her husband. Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. And when Paul says to be subject here, it is the same word that we looked at in verse 21. Exact same word, same idea, Uh, where Paul said to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In the same way and in the same manner that we are to with our minds and and beginning with our attitudes that ought to manifest in our conduct and our behavior and our actions, we are in our minds and attitudes to position ourselves, to place ourselves, or uh, rather wives, 
are to place themselves under and have a ready deference to their husbands in the same way that we are all to place ourselves under and have a ready deference towards one another. Same word, same idea. However, there are a few things that Paul is not saying here. And sometimes it really helps to be clear about what you are saying by being very clear about what you are not saying. And so some things that Paul is not saying, Paul uses the word submit and not the word obey. He uses the word obey for children in 6.1 and in servants in 6.5. And there's a massive difference between the two. Here he is using a word that speaks to an attitude of willful deference. That is something, a a willful deference, a, a genuine heartfelt willingness to put one's own desire aside and to listen to an authority figure is not something that you're always going to get from children or servants. But it should be something that the husband gets from his wife. This is an attitude of willful deference, of a willingness to follow another's lead. This is not abject, unquestioning obedience. And it is certainly not. Mark this. It is most certainly not in any terms oppression or dominion. Paul is not saying that the husband has the right to execute dominance over his wife or to oppress his wife. The wife is to follow her husband's lead willingly, not in shackles and chains. She is not his slave. She is not his orderly to be ordered around and to cater to his every whim. Kent Hughes says of this biblical attitude of submission, what it should be, he comments on what it has instead become. He says, it has been perverted and abused by, and listen to how he qualifies these men, by disordered and sinful men, religious fools who do immense harm, Couch potato men who order their wives and their children around as though they were the Grand Sultan of Morocco, adulterous misogynists with ethics of Jabba the Hutt, I like that, who cow their wives around with Bible verses about submission, who require permission, who, who, who impose upon their wives that they must require permission to even go to the grocery store and instruction on even how to dress. This is not what Paul is saying by any stretch of the imagination. This is not what Paul is requiring of wives. Wives are not mindless, willless slaves to their husbands. They are partners, and as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, fellow heirs of the grace of life. As a wonderful biblical synonym for marriage, the grace of life. And in that grace of life, a man's wife is his fellow heir and partner. 
And they, as a fellow heir and partner, they have desires, feelings, and opinions of, the, of their own. And they should have the freedom to exercise, or rather, they should be able to exercise the freedom to voice those things to their husbands. And it is if and when those things come into conflict, if, if her desires, if her opinion, if her choice should come into conflict with that of her husband's, then there should be a willingness on her part to defer to his choice, which his role and, and responsibility of leadership requires him to make. Big difference between a, a partner and a fellow heir in the grace of life who is given the responsibility to submit to her husband. Big difference between that and that of a slave who must obey. First Peter three two, and if we have time, we'll read we'll read this passage as we close. First Peter three two, I think, helps by illustrating the wife's submission. This is not abject compliance. He defines it in uh, verse two as chaste and respectful behavior. Verse four, as an imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. And verse 6, it's, it's an attitude that re- recognizes the headship of her husband. That is what a wife's submission looks like, according to Pastor Peter. And so the wife is to submit herself to her own husband. And this is uh, pertaining to the heading. Paul is not instructing here's another thing paul is not saying he is not instructing women to submit to all men everywhere paul's not saying that he is specifically addressing the marriage relationship one man the husband one woman the wife that wife is to submit to her specific particular and i would hope individual husband not any other husband not any other man And if there is to be deference shown to men, it falls in line with verse verse 21, where we are expected as Christians, as the Lord's people, to generally have a willful deference to one another. No no Christian should be a self-willed, self-assertive individual, man or woman. And any deference that a woman should show to to a man who is not her husband falls in line with that command. But there is another sense, a more profound sense, a more intimate and comprehensive and thorough sense in which the wife is to submit to her own husband. Furthermore, and something else this passage is not saying, and this young ladies, please dial in to me right now. When you date, if you date, when you date or court or whatever the path to marriage is going to look like for you. Uh, Jennifer and I and I, I have not ruled out an arranged marriage. When you embark, I'm getting a look now. I'm not looking back at the look. When you embark on that path to marriage and you are in a relationship Please understand, 
Do not forget this. As a unmarried woman, you are not called to submit to your boyfriend or your gentleman caller or your suitor or your fiance. The Christian girlfriend, even if betrothed, is not under obligation to submit to any man with the exception of her father. Assuming she's still a child or still young, and I'm not exactly prepared to explain what an older unmarried woman, what her relationship should appropriately look like to her father at this point. But the Christian girlfriend, the Christian betrothed, the the Christian not yet married woman is not under any obligation to submit to the man who would be or could be, might be eventually her husband. It is only, you are only, 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 only called to submit to a man when you claim him as your husband and you become his wife. Not one moment sooner and not in any other circumstance whatsoever. You should not ever feel any compulsion or duty or responsibility to defer to his desires or his choice or his decisions until he becomes your husband. Only marriage imposes this duty upon a wife, upon a woman who has now become a wife. No other relationship, no other social arrangement, only marriage, period. Is that clear? Okay. And the daughter, the fathers of daughters everywhere said amen. Notice also, wives. Paul does not qualify this group of people he's addressing other than calling them wives. It is not a particular subset of wives. It is, it is all wives. It is not specific wives. It is not a special grouping of wives. It is just wives. It is wives everywhere and in every generation. And this has to be pointed out because some wives may feel the temptation to want to exempt themselves from submitting to their husbands. They may be particularly talented. They may be savvy. They may be smart. They may be smarter than he is. They may have a pattern of wearing the pants in the home as the colloquialism goes. Their husbands may not be particularly adept at in-home leadership. They may have, their, their husbands rather, may have habits and tendencies and vices, or we could just say sins, that would make them clearly disqualified for leadership in roles and positions and responsibilities outside of marriage and outside of the home. The husband may be lousy with money, they may be irresponsible with their time, and they may have a poor reputation. They may not be men of their word. And the wife, for all intents and purposes, she may be smarter, wiser, better organized, better skilled. She may be a better planner. She may have better initiative. She may have better vision, better discipline. She may be more gifted than he is she may be more godly than he is 
And she very well, practically speaking, she might be a better leader, practically speaking. And 1 Peter 3.1 even admits that some husbands may be disobedient to the word, not just on an occasion, but as a habitual pattern, as a, as a way of life, they may not be the men that they should be. And I'm not talking about, I'm not requiring men to be perfect, but there may be something particular about those men that make it hard for the woman, for the wife, to submit to his leadership. He may be a real knucklehead, real knucklehead. Nevertheless, the same verse which also admits some men are disobedient to the word also says that the wife of such a man ought to be submissive to her husband. And this is as much as important for unmarried ladies to hear as it is for unmarried men to hear. Warren's not here, but we have some we have one other young man who is close to dating age. We have a couple other younger young men who are it may be a few years down the road. You may be thinking about dating and marriage. It is not your position to look at a girl who is not yet your wife as though you own her and as though she owes you her submission. It is not until you put that ring on her finger and you give your vows before God and before the people of God and you exclusively become one another's property. And if that sounds weird, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul even says, the man's, the husband's body is not his own, but his wife's. Likewise, the wife's body is not her own, but the husband's. It is not until you exclusively become each other's that this claim occurs. And so, let me just give you some application as we round off point one, and I excuse you. To the single ladies and to parents of young girls, teach them, th- teach them this, and you who are single, Let this be your approach to dating and marriage in general. Be mindful who you marry. I'm just checking to make sure at least most of the kiddos are looking at me and the young adults. Be mindful who you marry. Understand what your role and responsibility will be for you when you join yourself to a man in covenant relationship of marriage. And when you stand before the Lord, you will not be held accountable for how successful your side, your business was or your career was. You will not be held accountable by Him for how far you advanced, how much your business grew, how much money you made or the social status you gained or the number of followers you had on social media. These are not the things that the Lord will hold you accountable for. What he will hold you accountable for was whether or not you responded in a faithful, trusting, humble obedience to this instruction here. And for that reason, don't be foolish and don't join yourself to a man who you can tell will 
make submitting to him difficult. Don't join yourself to a man where all the indications, all the, all the lines, all the arrows are saying down the road, you might struggle under his leadership. You, it might be a hard thing, a difficult thing for you to look at him and in your heart and in your attitude to say that you are, that, that you are willfully placing yourself under him and you are following his lead. If you've heard of missionary dating, don't do it. Don't. Don't. Don't marry a man with the assumption that you will fix him down the road. Sometimes ladies do that. Don't. Don't be in a hurry to get out of singleness by marrying a man who has a compromised character. And again, I'm not he doesn't need to be perfect. The Lord Jesus is the only perfect man. But there are some qualities of a man that will make submission to him particularly difficult. You don't want buyer's remorse in marriage. And as one man says, and I can't say who he is cuz I don't know his name, But one man says, it might be better for you to want something that you don't have rather than having someone you don't want. And a man joining yourself to a domineering, selfish, assertive, abusive man has dire consequences. Young ladies, be mindful who you marry. And I can't get go through this without at least giving something to the men. Men, I want you to understand something. Who is this command given to? You, you can speak. Wives, Paul is addressing the married ladies. He's not telling men, see to it that your woman respects you. See to it that your woman does what you say. And when you jump, she says how high. No, he's not saying that. He's not, he, Paul is not telling husbands to enforce or maintain or to keep their wives in check. Again, no husband should lord it over their wives with any kind of attitude that says, know your place. He is telling wives, wives, be subject, subject yourself. And this is where, you know, there are times where I I feel it's not necessary to, to bring up grammar bits of information. Here's one where it is. Paul is using what's called the middle voice. And you understand if something is in the active voice, I'm doing something. Joe is doing something. Ryan or whatever is doing something. The passive is something's being done to me or something's being done to Ryan or Jack or whatever. This is what's called the middle voice, meaning it is a, it is a reflective action in the same way that I could throw a boomerang and it comes around and has an effect on me. 
This is what this is what Paul is doing. Ladies, in a reflective way, wives, you subject yourselves. He's not telling the men to to to, to impose this attitude on their wives. He's saying, ladies, you subject yourselves. That's your responsibility. This is your prerogative. Nobody should have to compulse you or obligate you into doing this. This should come from your own heart, from a suppression of your own will. And I said this was directed towards the men, so let me, let, me, let, me, let me direct it back to the men. Understand this imperative is given to the wives, not you, not us. And to that end, even though it is ultimately her responsibility to respond in, faith, in faithful obedience to this, don't unnecessarily frustrate your wives. And I need a little mirror up here so I can, I can point at that knucklehead. Jennifer's wife needs husband needs to hear this. Don't unnecessarily frustrate your wives. Don't don't make their burden any more burdensome and don't provoke them to frustration. Yes, 1 Peter 3 uh 3 1 says that men may be disobedient to the word and nevertheless the wife has to submit and when she does that's commendable but don't unnecessarily make it difficult and rough and rocky for her make their job easier make their obedience to this passage easier love your wives as Christ loves the church be so utterly selfless that submission to you comes easier. So esteem their point of view. So appreciate their opinions and be so, have such gratitude for their contributions that they, they, submitting to you almost becomes second nature for them. Make their obedience to this command easier and remove any hindrance, any obstacle that you have inadvertently or perhaps directly put in their path. Their obedience to this passage should not be like a gauntlet because of our sinfulness. So let me close with 1 Peter 3. 1 to 6. And then I'll dismiss you. Or no, then Daniel will sing and then he'll dismiss you. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that if so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. But, here it is, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, You want a model? You want an example? Here you go. For in this way, in former times, the holy women 
also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Again, that's a a recognition of his headship. Please don't call your husband Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And you know, let me Again, let me just throw this in. We're here. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Stop being knuckleheads. As with someone weaker, since she is a woman, recognize she's made differently than you. And show her honor. Esteem her. Elevate her as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Does it seem like your prayers don't go anywhere? They might be hindered because of the way you treat your wife. Let's pray. Lord, we, we love the gospel of Jesus Christ because it reminds us that there is no failure too great that the blood of Jesus cannot cover it and forgive it. And there are many here who have perhaps sinned against their spouse. There is grace and forgiveness for even sins such as that. And I lift my, I raise my arms and I place them around this whole congregation and ask that where there has been sin, that it would be confessed. having been confronted by your word, having been compared side by side with what your word has to say about how the conduct of a husband and a wife should be and the recognition that many of us can't compare. Where there is a lack of conformity, where there is a divergence from what your word says a marriage should be like, let grace abound. Let those sins be forgiven and let those who, who sin walk in repentance. Lord, may the marriages at SVBC be godly and healthy and vibrant and strong and God-glorifying. We love you, Lord. We love your word. Amen.